are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Hi, how you going? Really good. Ah, I don't know who I'm talking to. Am I talking to you, listener? Am I talking to Ash? I'm talking to myself. <laughs> it's a little bit of uh, A, B, and C. I'm having all the columns for afternoon tea today. Uh, this is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio 855. AM, 3CR Digital and 3CR.org.au and uh, Ash, you've just got a little bit of... Uh, oh, sorry, my name's Nick and Ash is sitting across from me. I, you know, I have to do the formalities first and also thank you to Freedom of Species who will be back <laughs> next week from 1pm. Find out more about them on the 3CR website, 3CR.org.au. That's where you can get to the podcast uh, and subscribe, find all the other information that's going on as well. And those noises you can hear in the background are the live feed from the audio from the moon landing. 50 years ago today, this was the sounds of the astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon. So happy moon landing, everyone. Mm, and to... So I'm just having this. What are they actually talking about right now? It's all. It's a lot of technical talk, really, isn't it? No, they they're describing. About... So I was actually, I was, I was pretty late getting he's, into the studio because we were like, time oh, he's about to take the first steps. <laughs> so they spend a lot of time actually describing what it looks like, right? Because nobody's ever, of course, seen it. So describing the color and texture of the rocks and how they look. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. And you know, 1969. Uh, July 2069, the summer of love, the height of the kind of LSD counterculture. Um, and we went to the moon. And we went to the moon. You know, and so 50 years ago we, today, the, um, all of us, humanity. Well, you know, and that's kind of how a lot of people saw it. And all around the world, this is what <laughs> school children, families, and people would have been gathering around to listen to at the time. 50 years since we first stepped outside of our planet because we are explorers. I think that's what humans do. Um, yesterday was the Australian Psychedelic Society's Mushroom Day up in Belgrave. Uh, it was a, a, a day to uh, celebrate, gather community, talk about um, not just the psilocybe mushrooms, uh, but also mushrooms more broadly and their, their role in things. And um, we, we had a, a screening of Fungamentary, which is a documentary. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, and we had it re Remastered, and we're, we're hoping to put the remastered version up there because at the moment the one that you find on YouTube is a bit of a like clunky VHS uh, digital digitalized copy, um, and uh, um, we screened that. I'd been speaking for the past six months to a guy. I'll just say this part because it's important. But um, speaking uh, to Paul Blake, one of the makers of that film, um, for the past six months, and uh, was really excited because he was going to come over here and talk about the film a little bit. Um, and he's the kind of guy you get on the phone and he loves to chat. Like you, you've got five minutes worth of something to talk about an hour later, and you're like, there's about seven different conversations uh, that we could still continue at, the, at at this point. But we've literally been talking for an hour now, and I have to do you know other things. Um, Really great guy. Just three weeks ago, as I'm finishing off the preparations for this movie event yesterday at the Cameo, he passed away quite suddenly. And, um, yeah, just wanted to say... Uh, I, I got a, a message from his brother yesterday saying thanks for, for doing that. But we screened this... Anyway, screened the movie. Screened the movie, uh, Fungamentary, about uh, magic mushroom hunting in uh, Balling Up in WA. Um, and then we had a panel discussion afterwards with uh, Michael Bock, who's a... Uh, you can find... 
EGA um, YouTube video channel uh, video of Michael speaking about um, uh, entheogens in the Australian bush. Uh, that's youtube.com forward slash entheotv. We had Greg Kasarik, a long-time psychedelic activist um, slash troublemaker slash herder of cats. Um, uh, we had uh, Jesse Murray, who is the former New South Wales Dancewise coordinator, has uh, has is one of those who has uh, been on the New South Wales ex- exodus, uh, getting out of the Berejiklian regime um, before it all you know gets even worse. Uh, and Meredith um, Drinkle, who is uh, one of the Australian Psychedelic Society uh, key members. She, well, she's been doing a lot of the uh, the integration uh, events, and she's also a music therapist. And, and during this, um, we were talking a lot about um, boundary setting uh, with, with psychedelics, because one of the problems, I think, and it's not just psychedelics, it's all substances. One of the problems is that um, people get into these states where they do feel quite good they're almost ecstatic you know people feel really good it's nice you you're you know you're having this good experience um but a problem that we see and it's a problem that needs to be addressed better is that people don't realize that because they're having that experience doesn't mean that somebody else is and that they're them enjoying themselves and having a good time doesn't mean that somebody else is already and you can't project that you can't push that onto other people just because you're having a good time and i see this a lot in the festival scene as well you'll mm. see people on a dance floor who are having the best time who take liberties to uh take upon themselves liberties that aren't theirs to uh encroach on people's personal space uh because they think it's all okay mm. uh but they're not they're not checking in they're not they're not actually they're not considering that and i've seen people get defensive at the point where they are pulled up on it as well and um, we were talking about, I guess, 50 years on from the moon landing where we've gone out, we've spread out, gone out to the world, uh, gone out outside of this world to try and explore. The, the flip side is that with, through psychedelics, this is the inward expl- exploration. This is that uh, if you don't know yourself inside, the, I mean, that's, the only, that's your only conduit through which you know the outside world in the first place. So if you don't know that, then it all gets muddled. The outside world gets muddled because your inside world doesn't know what to do with it. Mm. So anyway, it was Mushroom Day it was good. And we have um, things I, on I, YouTube I, I got a nice preview from uh, Melissa Warner giving a talk on um, meditation, flow states, and psychedelics. And what was interesting about it was that um, it wasn't so much a talk about psychedelics as it was a talk about meditation and how to um, achieve, I guess, what uh, she called peak performance. So where mm. your um, mind and body are aligned with your intentions to effectively move through life. And psychedelics can be a helpful tool in that, but meditation kind of builds the framework for those those tools to actually work better. Um, and she's going to be working on that to present that one more in the future. Well, there were, I, just, just, I, we'll do a quick debrief quickly because I've got a few things in my head about the event that I'm happy to share with uh, whoever's listening right now. But um, it, it went well. But that space downstairs, we had the opportunity to have um, more content. We, we had some more things that we, we wanted to have going on. It was organized a bit last minute. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to activate as many spaces as possible. But... It gave us a good inkling of what we can do in the future. Um, so Melissa's going to be presenting this at future... Breaking conventions. Right. Um, in London. Yeah, that's right. Yes, uh, so breaking... She, yeah, con- she's got quite a large stage there. And it comes with a guided meditation part and everything so that people can hopefully take away some tools, whether or not they use psychedelics to um, improve those things about, you know, uh, kind of that inward knowledge, the, the peace of mind to be able to uh, hopefully effectively move towards their intentions um, better. Yeah, which is, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it sort of sounds um, 
fluffy because you're not like, what does that mean? Your intentions, yeah, you well, kind of have I mean, to work I, out. I, I don't have the it. words of Melissa. You know, she's, she's, she's very grounded in it. like a deep knowledge of neuroscience. So it's, it, it might sound fluffy, but it's actually grounded in yeah, very well, strong evidence. Yeah, no, absolutely. She's very good at um, bringing people in. And I mean, this is the, the flip side of fluff is that there is something to it. It's, you know, attached to something feels good um sometimes people like to you know go off into into fluff territory where you're like this is just like this is you know those candy floss machines right that spin (laughs) sugar around and they make the web if you keep it enclosed it's like that except there's no enclosure so it's just sugar stuff going everywhere it doesn't it doesn't ever come together um so but if you if you put something around it, then you can build a nice um, candy floss. And eat, eat, I don't know, I've lost my metaphor, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> your sugar bits are flying off. They are f- <laughs> webbing all over the place. Um, tomorrow is uh, International Remembrance Day, uh, and Adriana uh, Buccianti, Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnerships uh, will be attending at the event at one twenty uh, one ten Church Street between six thirty and eight pm uh, tomorrow night. Uh, you can RSVP the calendar. If you just go to the Encyclopedia website, encyclopedia.org, and uh, look at events, you will find the calendar and some details for that one there. Uh, Remembrance Day being in uh, remembrance of people who have lost their lives because uh, lost their lives pointlessly, I should add, because of the war on drugs. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I will not be making that one because tomorrow is, in fact, Students for Sensible Drug Policies AGM. So Woo-hoo! good luck to all the student activists out there. Administrative time. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, bringing in a whole new structure for the organisation. So it's like phase two of SSDP. Big time. Sounds like a Marvel Cinematic Universe plot. Um, <laughs> it's tangent. Um so for the episode today, we caught up with uh, Dr. John Jiggins. Uh, John uh, is a so he he's uh, he wrote Marijuana Australiana about the history of cannabis in Australia. Um, he has done some economic modelling of illicit markets uh, in Australia. He presents on Four Triple Z up in Brisbane, um, and he he came along to the Mushroom Day yesterday as well, and he really enjoyed that. Uh, John's been around for a long time. He's seen a lot of things go on, and we caught up with him about a whole range of issues. Uh, and um, that's what you're going to hear right now. <laughs> this is Inside Daily on Three CR eight five five AM Three CR Digital. 3cr.org.au. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. My name is Nick, sitting across from me, Ash Blackwell. Uh, g'day. And uh, in the studio now, uh, we have uh, somebody who I've wanted to meet since before we started doing the show, whose work I was reading uh, when I was working with um, Fiona Patton, uh, especially on uh, the history of uh, cannabis prohibition in Australia and uh, on some some of the economic modelling of the, the size of uh, markets. Um, and this is Dr. John Jiggins. He's a reporter for Bay FM in Byron Bay, one of the well, the community radio in Byron Bay, uh, and uh, did his, uh, his PhD on the history of cannabis prohibition in australia you can look it up it's called marijuana australiana cannabis use popular culture and the americanization of drugs policy in australia 1938 to 1988 john welcome to the program oh great uh, to be on your show i think you do a really wonderful program Thank you very much, and um, I think you do wonderful work. So it's, <laughs> I'm glad that we're getting to sit here in the uh, in the same room. So um, where we wanted to start was um, one of your recent uh, articles for this was for uh, Independent Australia. That's IndependentAustralia.net. Uh, it's an online um, uh, publication uh, from people like. Uh, Dr. John Jiggins and a lot of other people who, who do really excellent work, and this was on the Great Australian Methamphetamine Flood. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what this flood is? 
Well, it sort of starts off with um, reviewing the um, illicit drug data report, which is put out by the Australian Crime Intelligence uh, Commission. And it's a sort of yearly summary of um, our progress, in inverted commas, in the uh, war on drugs. So it's basically reviewing that and um, it looks at how that's going. So the, um, the, these are the, uh, the, the figures on um, how much is seized per year, um, this, this sort of thing? Is this what, what yeah, in these Yeah, it's how figures? many um, drug arrests start the year, and that's what it starts off with. It's comparing um, the years 2010, 11, 2013, 14, 2016, 17, because um, the way uh, they do these sort of reports is on the financial year, not the um, year itself. Mm. And it's a great way to sort of work out what they're actually doing. And what they're doing is spending more and more money on drug law enforcement, and they're arresting more and more people. I think um, the figures are there, and I don't know if I can necessarily remember them all, but I think there was about 85,000 arrests in 2010 to 2011, and they're up to 154,000 drug arrests in uh, 2016 and 17. Your memory is pretty good. That's about right, yeah. (laughs) So they've more or less um, doubled in that period. And uh, they've really... The main feature of it is um, the war on meth and the war on ice, which um, they kicked off about 2010. It was the way they were going to solve the ice problem was with um, these hugely propaganda ice kills sorts of... um, Gives you superhuman strength, um, <laughs> turns you into an irrational bioman, ice bioman. I'm making up things now, but yeah. that's what the media does, isn't it? Yeah, and um, they have very little effect at all. They appeal to people who don't use ice, yes. you know, and the people who use ice, most of them aren't in that situation. And once they're in that situation, you know, a situation where things are spiralling out of control, really it doesn't help them to have been victimised or for all that period. and But if you look at those figures, again, I'll try and do this from memory, but I think there's something like uh, 12,000 um, arrests in 2010, 2011, and it's gone up to around about 48,000 in 2016 and 17. So it's increased uh, by a factor of four in that period. And that's where you can see that there is you know, an actual war of ice and you actually get some sort of measurement of it. Presumably, from the police's perspective, more numbers on that sheet is all they're looking at in terms of success. I mean, what else is there? What are there? Are there are there other um, indicators of success, or are they looking at the number of people that they can persecute? Because I think this is where the problem begins. Well, persecute's a really great sort of description. We'll get back to that. But yeah, no, their strategy is to arrest their way out of the problem. And so consequently, according to them, they've been four times as successful in arresting their way out of the problem. Mm. Um, But then when you look at what that actually achieves, um, one of the things it achieves is because the number of drug arrests has doubled in that um, six-year period, the amount they're spending on um, drug law enforcement is now around about $2.6 billion. Back in 2010, 2011, I sort of did an estimate of how much we spend on drug law enforcement in Australia, which um, was 
presented at the Atoda conference, which is the Australia. I can't remember the initials. Australia. Mm. Keep keep going. Anyway, I'll find it. Um, and I came up with the figure that we were spending one point two billion dollars on drug law enforcement, and that's just on what we're spending on police, prisons, and what the government pays of the legal system. Mm. Now. You can include other costs in that. Like I didn't look at the costs of building more prisons, which is about would be about twenty percent more mm. on that, and other costs as well. I didn't work out how much we spend on customs because customs is now border force, and they um, had a budget of a billion dollars that year. But you don't know what percentage of that is going on stopping illegal immigrants. What's going on quarantine? It's very difficult problem to solve, so I didn't attempt that. Now, at the same conference, the... Um, Which was the Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Association of the ACT. Uh, Victoria's equivalent is VADA, so it's... Yeah. yeah, the um, people from NDARC, which is the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, my joke about them is they're helping to end dark in Australia. But uh, <laughs> So normally I don't get on very well with them, but Alison... Ritter and a team from that also did an estimate of um, drug law enforcement, and they came up to a very similar figure to me, which was $1.123 million on drug law enforcement. Their paper's also really good in that they um, attempted to work out how much we spent on treatment and education. And according to her paper, which I sort of agree with, seeing she agrees with me on drug law enforcement, I guess... I quite like her paper. Um, <laughs> it's about um, you know ninety percent of the money we spend is spent on drug law enforcement. It's not spent on education and uh, treatment. And the sort of education they do is eye skills. Well, the, I'm just touching quickly on the education programs. From what I understand in Victoria, the way it works is it's not schools um, that are implementing a curriculum that has been written by people who, who understand this issue, who understand pedagogy, etc. Uh, largely, it's coming from outside organisations. A lot of them are religious-based organisations, so church groups and things like that, or from um, ex-drug users that um, present the repentance narrative, which is the acceptable narrative uh, in, in terms of talking about drugs. It's the person who is now abstinent who, you know, became an addict and went off the rails and they're there to scare the pants off your children in school so that they won't take drugs, so that they will just say no. Um, so the government, I believe there are grants available to schools um, that they can pay for these sorts of programs, but this is the way that our public money is being used to bring in um, people with sometimes very, very little credibility. I'm thinking of a, a Karen Redpath who uh, does drug education in Victoria, or drug education in Victoria. She was on the ABC um, on... Uh, um, uh, the, on Q&A uh, alongside a, a panel of experts and um, demonstrated herself to be terribly um, ill-informed on a number of issues. And she is the person that's doing drug education in schools. So this is where that minuscule amount of money is going. But I, I mean, just going back to the amount that is spent on policing, as you said, it was $2.6 billion 2016-17. That's an Australia-wide figure, I assume? Yeah, that's yep. Australia-wide. And... Uh the other thing about that is you can more or less work out how big the Australian drug market is from that figure. Every dollar you spend on drug law enforcement is worth $10 to the black market. Uh, so we can assume that the drug black market is something like $26 billion. Um, now, the way I sort of... That's just from my figures. I, I also worked out the cost of... Um, 
the Australian drug market in my 2010-2011 paper, and it was about, um, I think it was about $16 billion and I had um, the cost of drug law enforcement at $1.2 billion. But as I said, I didn't include things such as um, uh, what Border Force spends and at the cost of building new drugs. So I suppose um, it's, you know, if you're just going to base it on the justice sector cost, it's more than 10 times. So um, and there's actually just sorry before you go on. There's actually something interesting in the way that you work this out because um, you just mentioned um, the that you can sort of assume the drug market is about ten times what's spent on enforcement. Um, there's something uh, the multiplier effect in in the drug market, and I think you outlined this in your 2010 2011 paper uh, about the the sort of overexpanded, um, exaggerated values in the drug market and exactly how increases in law enforcement don't mean less drugs, but just mean that it's just sort of sucked into the price. Can you talk a bit about how that how yeah, this works? Yeah, well, it's really... I, I, when I was doing my PhD thesis, I'd, I'd worked out the sort of size of the cannabis market, and I was working out the um, size of what we spent on drug law enforcement. And generally, the thing which puzzled me, I was I could multiply my figure for drug law enforcement by five, and I'd get the um, street value figure for the size of the cannabis market. And that struck me as being really puzzling and um, because it doesn't seem logical. But the way it actually works out is um, price varies with the regime of prohibition. Regime of prohibition is how I measure um, prohibition. You can, and it's the number of drug offences per drug users. That's the way you, you work out the figure. Um, so that the... Um, more, the more you crack down, you force the price up. And that's why the police say they do it, you know. We're cracking down to um, force the price up. So the cost of producing something like cannabis is almost nothing, you know, uh, if, you just, if you haven't got drug law enforcement. But once you've got drug law enforcement, the price of cannabis can, you know, soar to 300000 or or uh, $300 an ounce or $450 an ounce. Um, and so the main determinant of price is what you spend on drug law enforcement. And that's easy to imagine if you got rid of drug law enforcement, what would be the price of cannabis? It wouldn't be um, $400 or $300 an ounce anymore. Same, same with heroin. I mean, we're one of the biggest suppliers of we're one of the biggest suppliers of opium in the world. Like we could actually produce heroin in this country very cheaply. Um, so yeah, it's it's the fact that it has to come all the way through a bunch of different smuggling routes that, that generates that price cost. Mm. And the other thing is prohibition has no effect on um, reducing supply. So that's why prohibition acts as a multiplier. It increases the price but doesn't really decrease demand because it's made to appeal to people who don't take drugs. <laughs> and uh, you were talking about the just say no, N-O, um, campaign, which it's all based on, really it should have a just say no, K-N-O-W sort mm. of strategy. And that's a sort of sensible strategy. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, this, a lot of it is about um, is about information and the flow of information in, in prohibition. Even the flow of good information about drugs is considered subversive because it might just encourage somebody to take a drug where the assumption is that if they don't know, then they won't take a drug. The reality is that if people don't know, they make up information and they know what feels good and they take drugs anyway. But uh, that's that's still at the core of um, of the, this information flow that goes on in, and, in prohibition. And they make um, 
that such information illegal. It's illegal in Queensland um, to, you know, publish information on how to grow cannabis. Which yes, here too. Here too. <laughs> yeah. Which is you basically, you can start with a seed and plant it in the ground and water it, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's a legal thing you've just said there, John. Uh, no sense of that from the program. No, it's, but you're, you're right. We, we had, uh, it might have been around the same time, actually. Was that a relatively recent... Uh, innovation in the Queensland? Uh, no, it comes with the Drugs Misuse Act of 1985. Um, it's sort of included in that. And uh, I think Queensland does tend to be the um, pace setter in that. And uh, it's m- largely because the drugs laws in Australia are influenced by something called the Williams Royal Commission back in 1977 to about 1980. And... Um, that's for most of Australia except South Australia and New South Wales who have their own drug uh, law commissions at that time. At that time, there's a famous murder, the murder of Donald McKay, mm-hmm. and that's something I've written two books about. But um, that's what starts off you know, an Australia-wide um, inquiry into drugs policy. And it's also at the time when we're starting to get... Um, campaigns to legalise drugs. We've got the Australian Marijuana Party and starting up as a political party and uh, they've also got the Cannabis Research Foundation at that time too. So the campaign for drug law reform is underway quite strongly from about 75, 76 onwards. So, because uh, I've been looking at a lot of this um, recently and uh, before before the sort of 1960s, it was through the 1960s that we started to see the kind of legislation or the precursors to the kind of legislation that we have now, um, the the, uh, the scheduling, uh, the defining everything as a drug of dependence and moving towards a punitive model uh, where previously uh, we actually had uh, a largely medicalised model uh, for drug distribution in Australia, um, although then there were also some pretty, from what I understand, some pretty strange mechanisms of dealing with people who were perceived to have substance use problems like all sorts of, um, I, I can't remember what they were called, but the sort of mental health um, sector then was uh, a bit a bit lacking. So, and then through the 1970s, um, we saw uh, the, of course, the the international treaties uh, established by the United Nations. Uh, so I assume that 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 was all wrapped in there with the Williams um, uh, inquiry into responding to how do we make our laws uh, reflect the United Nations treaties as well. Was that well? What happens? Um the, the main sort of international treaty you're talking about is, which, which starts the trend, is the 1961 Single Convention, which is um, pushed by a man called Harry Anslinger, who's head of the Bureau of Narcotics in the US. And that's basically, he had been campaigning for a number of decades, really, to sort of apply the, the Opium Convention, or the laws on opium, to cannabis. And the laws on opium the um, prohibition on opium goes, and heroin and cocaine go back to, well, the 1912 Shanghai Convention, but they really started to be enforced after the First World War because during the First World War, they're using large amounts of cocaine and morphine for the troops. Like um, the Germans had worked out that um, an army could march twice as far in with full kit um, 
on cocaine than they could without it. So cocaine was one of the sort of strategic supplies during the First World War. And once you'd blown people apart, you really needed a really good pain management uh, drug. And so morphine was really quite big. So you, you, although they start to implement those sorts of um, drug laws after the First World War, They've created a big market for it with the sort of returned soldiers and mm. they've also um, got these huge stockpiles of cocaine and morphine once the war starts. So um, the sort of mess officers, the people who've been buying things for the army, can buy all this cocaine and morphine really cheap and etc. So, um, you know, like there is um, quite a lot of cocaine in Australia after the First World War and a lot of the Razor Gangs which set up um, during that period of, you know, got you know returned soldiers as their people running it and also um, the people uh, who are, you know, uh, the uh, consumers.
Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, speaking now with uh, Dr. John Jiggins, who is the author of Marijuana Australiana, Cannabis Use, Popular Culture and the Americanization of Drugs Policy in Australia. Uh, also a number of other uh, papers covering a wide range of things like the history of uh, prohibition in Australia uh, and also uh, the economics of, uh, of modern uh, drug markets in Australia. And just touching, I mean, this is a really interesting issue because it, it sort of shows that a lot of prohibition has um, has really, I mean, it's, it's come along with the move of globalisation because some of the first companies that were running uh, drugs around the world and moving these products from one part to another were the original uh, multinational companies, were the uh, East India companies. Uh, and um, it, it's from, because that was, what, three, 400 years ago? Where, yeah. where am I, Look, 16? can I, I just dodge that question and sure. go back to the great Australian methamphetamine flood? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> Basically, um, you know, you do have this sort of huge, um, uh, because we, Australia is a sort of an island and because we spend so much on drug law enforcement, we're really good at stopping drugs from getting into the country. So what we've done through that is we've got the highest price methamphetamine in the world. Um, so in that, pay, in that sort of online article which... Um, we're talking about there's um, a link to the uh, the a list of the sort of um, price of methamphetamine throughout the world and Australia does have the highest price um, measured in US dollars it's six hundred around about six hundred and fifty dollars per gram um, and one of the lowest price ones is Cambodia which is one point six US dollars. Per gram, so our price for um, methamphetamines is four hundred times what you'd pay in Cambodia. Um, so that gives you some idea of the sort of profit which can be made from a successful ice or methamphetamine um, smuggling operation into Australia. It, it no, because the people in Cambodia are still making a profit at $1.6 per gram. Um, so that'd be, you know, like it's probably only about 50 cents per gram, you know. Mm. Um, so you can turn, you know, say, um, you know, $500,000 into a billion dollars. You're getting something like a 200,000% profit So these thanks to pro prohibition. So naturally all the big methamphetamine manufacturers in the world want to flood Australia with ice because, you know, they can turn 500000 into a billion dollars. And um, the economics of it is just so extraordinary. And that's why we've had this enormous methamphetamine flood, which I go into in that article, just the staggering size of the methamphetamine flood. Uh, the article again, independentaustralia.net, and it's called The Great Australian Methamphetamine Flood, um, talking about the, the uh, well, I mean, the huge economic incentives for people to continue uh, trying to supply drugs, even though the argument the police put forward is that policing supply is going to somehow reduce the number of people taking it because, I don't know, they're trying to undercut demand. I don't really understand how it works. I think this is actually one of the things that um, that, that happens in this, in this discussion, that we have constant um, 
uh, media releases being uncritically reported from police departments where we'll get a, a news agency basically um, reheating a, the what whatever the police said and, and reporting on it without talking to anybody else involved. Um, I've been calling it um, seizure porn. It's, it's just there. Uh, as, as you said before, a lot of this is for the people who already think the prohibition is, uh, is a good thing, who don't take drugs, who aren't affected. It's for those people. It's to make, make it all look like, a, look, we're doing something something um and but but i mean what you're saying is that actually what they've done is create a massive lucrative market in australia uh that that attracts uh global uh distributors of methamphetamine well according to the um recent wastewater report where they try and sort of estimate the size of the um oh the amphetamine market in australia they put it at nine billion dollars and they uh, say it's 9.6 tonnes. I personally think they're underestimating because um, in recent years they've seized that amount of um, of uh, amphetamines. They've actually you know seized something like 9.6 tonnes in 2015-16 uh, and 7 point something tonnes in 2016-17 and they're the most recent figures. So um, I think it's a bit of an underestimation, but that's why when I say that the market is probably 10 times what we spend on drug law enforcement, which is 2.6, so the market's 26 billion, 9 billion of that is just um, what they say is the methamphetamine or the amphetamine market, which I think is a bit of an underestimation anyway. So it is, um, you know, pretty much what that is. And as a consequence of that, it creates a whole industry for people um, in methamphetamines because it isn't just the you know manufacturers and the wholesalers. It's the sort of street-level dealers are getting this sort of incredibly uh, lucrative price. So it can actually pay them to sort of wander around Australia, going to sort of festivals and um, going to sort of concerts and things and just... Um, you know, selling their wares. Like the incredible price of ice in Australia has created this huge industry which um, sort of um, encourages the market or, or, you know, puts the market there, you know. So it's that's why prohibition is so self-defeating. In I, fact, it, it, it is, uh, you know, uh, it's an incentive for the industry. It's a multiplier for the industry. Um, I've been reading a little bit about um, some of the uh, arrest rates around uh, around a, a number of drugs, and uh, and what you say um, is is an important factor to for especially for uh, policymakers that are relying on the police to to break apart these markets to consider that the people that they're catching are people that might be earning uh, quite a fair whack, but in terms of the size of the market, it's it's small fish, and the people that understand this set up the market to work in this way, so that even if there is a huge seizure how much of a dent does it really make in overall supply? Well, if you look at the paper and if you look at the wonderful stories about how successful they're being, I think there was a seizure of 1.6 tonnes of ice in Melbourne in June, which the police valued at $1.3 billion. Now, as I said, it would probably cost only you know a few million to manufacture that. It's, the rest of it is just profit for them. Um, so, 
Yes, that's how big it is. The police are claiming to have taken $1.3 billion of ice off the market and the media say they're doing really well and these are major, major blows and the dealers in death are going to... You know, all the clichés they come out with, which are essentially lies. And this, again, this is one of the problems that the the media sort of has, is is, um, is complicit in um, the failures of prohibition in that they, they report these things without critique of what's going on, which is their one job, really. It's the one job as a journalist, critique what's going on. Um, but instead we get them pushing the message constantly because that's the focus of politicians. They want to see, uh, you know, see things on, on message and that's, you know, don't don't promote drug use, don't promote illicit drug use. It's a crime, it's bad, just say no is what we want to see. And look at all these wonderful uh, seizures of large amounts of drugs. Look at all the uh, abstract and imaginary figures of people that we're now saving because that's the idea that somehow this amount of money is going to, or, or drugs removed, is going to stop a whole bunch of people being harmed. Uh, and that's that's the link, assuming that those people don't find another drug to go and find, which is exactly what people do. They have a, There's a substitute effect um, for some drugs where if people can't find something on the market, they'll find something else. So they might take a big whack out of one market and that might affect somebody's supply, so they go and try something else. It doesn't seem to actually address people's drug use or if they have harm associated with that drug use. It's not addressing that either. Yes. Once you make things illegal, you get criminals entering it into the market. Once there are criminals involved, you get the police corrupted and it then gets taken over by organised crime. And that's what my PhD thesis is about. Well, it sort of, you know, traces the history of how um, it, you know, organised crime takes over the drug scene. There was a. I just wanted to tell you about a particularly ridiculous video on on the um, the extent to which seizure porn has gone now um, that I saw just the other day, and it is it's something out of a James Bond film, right? This is a, a real life apparently video of the U.S. Coast Guard boarding a narco submarine, which I didn't even know was a thing, boarding a submarine. They're in the middle of the ocean, zooming along, and this guy, decked out in full military gear, jumps onto the submarine that's just poking out of the water and bangs on the hatch. Like, this is straight out of an action movie. And the uh, the, the submarine was carrying 17,000 pounds of cocaine. But I just thought, my gosh, what... I mean, this is... this. That operation must have been very expensive and very very risky, obviously, in the first and second places. But I just thought, I mean, it's wonderful footage for the war on drugs for people that love action movies, isn't it? You're thinking now there's these guys out there banging on submarines, taking out the bad guys no matter where they are. They can be in the water. We don't care. We'll go get them. Like, <laughs> it's just... Uh, well, know. our submarines are costing something like a billion dollars each. How much does a submarine cost? But they've been doing this for a couple of decades. Like there was um, one bust in the 1980s which they they used a submarine. Um, I can't remember the details, but, um, you know, like it is so – it's so incredibly profitable. You can, you know, afford Afford to buy submarines. (laughs) (laughs) I assume they're very expensive, but, yeah. Um, So – Nick didn't actually tell me you were um, coming in today. It was a bit of a surprise oh, for sorry. me. So uh, <laughs> a good surprise. Um, I have actually read some of your PhD and referenced it in our submission to the um, to the drug law reform inquiry that um, happened here in Victoria, uh, I think two years ago now. Mm. The One of the things that... 
So two incidents that I think are, are very fascinating and interesting are the, the raid that happened in Cedar Bay in North Queensland in 1976 and then, as you mentioned just before, the, the murder of Donald McKay and how those two things influenced the politics of those two states outside of just the drug law reform politics. The Cedar Bay one in particular is quite fascinating in terms of uncovering some of the um, corruption, I guess, of the Bjelke-Peterson government. Yeah, well, I call Bjelke-Peterson and Askin uh, and Bolte, like it's those three premiers at the time, um, I call them Nixonites, and their policies are based on Richard Nixon's policy. And Richard Nixon is the first to really weaponise the sort of war on drugs. The war on drugs starts, um, oh, as I said, you could probably trace it back to 1912 and the Shanghai Opium Convention. Uh, but it's, um, and it's certainly pushed by Harry Anslinger in the 1930s, because what happens there, he's originally with the Bureau of Alcohol and Narcotics, but he gets moved into drug narcotics. And um, once alcohol prohibition's gone, you know, he's looking for a new job. So he um, starts the um, cannabis killer drug sort of propaganda. So um, that happens. But the first politician to really use that is Richard Nixon. And it's used in the context of the Vietnam War, where you've got a youthful culture opposing the war. And... Um, you can't really attack them for political things, so but you can attack them for using marijuana or cannabis. Sorry, I've used the M word. <laughs> I, will, I will punish myself when I go home. Um, but you can use them for using cannabis. And so that's what it's about. It's about the way the right wing victimises people or demonises people, and they just do it historically. It's the way, um, you know, right wing politics works. Um, and so you're able to demonise the sort of opposition to the Vietnam War and the opposition to Nixon. And in Australia, it was used to demonise the oppositions to Bielke Peterson. Like um, he used to refer to the uh, the lawbreaker, the radicals and the drug takers. <laughs> These were the people who were against the wonderful Joe Bielke Peterson um, and so what, what actually happened at the raid at Cedar Bay, for, for our listeners who might not know? Oh, well, it's a joint operation between the Australian Federal Police, the Queensland Police and the Australian Navy. So um, they have a helicopter involved to drop the police off at Cedar Bay. Cedar Bay is sort of this remote sort of hippie community about 80 miles north of uh, Cairns. There's nothing else around it. But, so it's difficult to get to, and uh, the way they do it is... They <sighs> I swear, it's like it's a big blue button. Um, you have been hearing from Dr John Jiggins. Um, that was the middle of the interview, if you hadn't guessed. Well, there's about ten minutes left of it. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to try and... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, let's just explain what happened. Look, it's a technical error. What we do on radio is we try and keep the technical areas a little bit secret from you. So, you you know, you, you notice something, but it's like a hiccup. You kind of ignore it. You forget about it a few minutes later. Um, but um, we've got uh, uh, my one-year-old son in here who who likes he likes buttons. He, lo he loves buttons. We call him Mr. Buttons. 
and um, he there's this big blue button that's right like at his eyesight height. Yes, yes, sorry. <laughs> and uh, it's the it's the computer where we have the entire like radio station on. Uh, <laughs> and he just he's like, oh, yeah, he, he basically you know. pressed the kill switch. It's yeah, the second time the too. <laughs> like, I know. We saw him going and for it. We were, just couldn't quite stop exactly, him. Exactly. I was watching him the whole, and he's he's sneaking, he's sneaky like that. Anyway, um, that's that's what happens. Uh, John uh, John Jiggins, um, talking there about um, modelling of the. Uh, Modeling of the um, uh, of the drug markets and also like a, a range of other things. Um, we did talk. I, I can't remember. Was that this up to the Cedar Bay point there? Because uh, we did start to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, wanna... I'm not 100 percent sure to be honest. Um, do you want me to maybe talk a little bit about the coronial inquest while you're digging that back up? Yeah, well, it's uh, it finished on Friday. This is the New South Wales coronial That's inquest. Right. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So they heard from. Um, well, they heard from a lot of the people that um, you will hear from somewhat regularly on in psychedelia. So Peter Malin's researcher from uh, RMIT, criminologist who um, has done research looking at the impact of the sniffer dog strip search process on people and particularly people that have a previous history maybe of sexual trauma and the way that... Um, that experience and the way it traumatizes people really mirrors that sort of thing. So it can really bring things up for people and have a ongoing psychological effect. And so she presented, I think on Thursday or Friday, um, covering some of that. And that's something that's come up in testimony is that at least um, one or two. So just to rewind, the coronial inquest in New South Wales is into the death of six people at festivals since 2017. And it's um, basically doing a, a, a deeper investigation into the causes, um, exactly what elements contributed to those deaths, and I suppose presenting some recommendations for um, what could be done to prevent that in the future. Uh, the mother of one of the um, uh, people that passed away at one of the festivals during uh, last festival season um, has asked Gladys Berejiklian, New South Wales Premier, to keep our festival goers as a start safe and ensure no other parent, brother, sister, family or friend must ever endure the unmeasurable anguish we have and to again make Australia world leaders in harm minimisation. Uh, and then this week, uh, Monica Barrett, Dr Monica Barrett, um, who has been on the program before, um, she's been away for a little bit on maternity leave. She's but just she's returned getting, from, a, with, I think, about a year off on maternity leave. Returned on fire. I've seen her name popping up all over the place. Uh, she's an RMIT uh, researcher in drug policy, and Monica found that 6% of Australian festival goers who had taken drugs in the past 12 months had sought medical treatment. Um, so that 6% of all the festival goers who are the ones who are included in the statistics of those who have taken drugs, that's, you know, so I, I mean... So, I'm and I think one of the it. figures that came up in that testimony, and we'll, we'll probably... Do, do a bit of a special on this coronial inquest because there's a lot to delve into there and, and I guess there's some hope that maybe there'll be a change of tack for particularly the New South Wales police force. Um, pill testing may or may not be on the cards, but there's a hope that maybe the New South Wales police force might pull back from some of the ways that they've been conducting sniffer dog operations. Um so the statistic was oh, yeah, that um, twice as many people sought medical 
for alcohol, for alcohol than they did. Yeah, for that's MDMA. What, so. Uh, this is the common theme that comes up over and over and over that uh, the the drug that we have the number one problem with, no matter what context it's in, is alcohol. But because alcohol is legal, uh, the conversation receives less attention. So, um, it, yeah, this it's four point three uh, out of every one hundred people at the festival, uh, people who drank alcohol sought medical attention. Two point five out of every one hundred. Uh, people that went to the festival and took MDMA sought medical attention and 1.48 for LSD, which mirrors very similarly to um, the uh, drug harm charts that we've seen, the, mm-hmm. the potential for harm. Um, but it doesn't mirror the discussion we hear um, when we're talking about drug policy, when we're, you know, when the mainstream discussion is going on. Uh, and with the uh, inquiry now, sorry, we were somewhere and I've, I've just lost my track. So going through people that were giving testimony. So mm. one of the... I don't know if oh, we... No. Splendor in the grass. Oh, so yeah. So there, there was... Um, so David Caldicott from Pill Testing Australia, one of Australia's leading advocates for pill testing, um, one of the chief forces behind the two trials that have happened now in the ACT. Um, he was doing a demonstration of the pill testing technology at Splendor in the Grass. Obviously, they couldn't do the actual testing there. But they're putting on a demonstration, and I believe either the coroner or um, coroner. perhaps it was the, the coroner, coroner was going up there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, that she was going up to see that. So it's a, the end of the two week inquiry in New South Wales uh, into these deaths, and the cor- I believe the coroner went up to see yeah. it. But um, the other side of that is I've seen reports from Splendor in the Grass that not only were the police doing, uh, well, we're pretty used to this in Victoria at the moment, but not only were the police doing sniffer dogs at the entrance gates, uh, but this is something that we see as a little bit more shocking in Victoria, I think. Um, but New South Wales are a bit more used to um, police sniffer dogs through the campsites. Mm. So this is through people's where they've set up their tents and things like this. Uh, it creates a very intimidating kind of environment. Um, and uh, that's the, at the end of this inquest when they've been told by every expert, literally every expert under other than people that literally work for New South Wales Police, are saying, this is not a good program, we need to get rid of this, it has a lot of unintended consequences, it's, and they outweigh any benefits from this program. In fact, it has very few. And uh, the only people that say to the police uh, who are like, oh, no, our program works, you should give us more funding. Um, So other people that have appeared before the inquiry this week, Dr. Stephen Bright, um, Vice President of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine and Lecturer in Addiction Medicine at Edith Cowan University, I think it is. Um, Well, there was an interesting one with Stephen. The Daily Telegraph uh, reported some comments um, about his testimony, but it turned out to be... Uh, I think factually incorrect, and I think counsel assisting the coroner had to correct the record on um, on Wednesday. But he did give testimony clarifying, um, you know, some of those comments that were attributed to him in the in the um, you know in the testimony, um, you know. And so, I think one thing that I might do here is it, it's it's a little bit difficult maybe to. Um, listen to so just aware that some some you know disturbing content is coming forth um and that is some testimony that a young woman gave uh when talking about going into the festival and how the sniffer dogs made her feel nervous i'm just scrolling down here uh that it was a really full-on there were lines and lines of police dogs i was surprised how intense it was 
Um, and then uh, the dog indicated on her and she, she went to get searched and, um, you know, quote, uh, you're naked. The way I was spoken to is like I'd done something wrong. Um, they made me walk through the crowd and everyone was staring at me. They made me pull my, put my hands together. I let go of my hands and they yelled at me. Uh, I was like, I don't have any. The, the police officer was like, tell me where the drugs are. The dogs are never wrong, so tell me where the drugs are. I was like, I don't have drugs. She was like, why do you look so nervous? What are you hiding? I said, nothing. I've never been in a situation like this before. I had to take my top off and my bra and I covered my boobs and she told me to put my hands up and she told me to tell me where the drugs were. She said, if you don't tell me where the drugs are, I'm going to make this nice and slow. Now, that to me, like, and that's why I kind of warned you that that was coming because it's so disturbing. If that testimony is accurate, this was testimony of a witness before the coronial inquest. If that's accurate, that is far and beyond any justification that could be made for the program. And um, even if they're going to continue doing things with the sniffer dogs, there is no justification whatsoever for that kind of approach. Queering the Air is up next on 3CR. And if you want to find out more about anything that we have said on the program, follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. We're there. Uh, You can also uh, check out our website, npsychedelia.org. Head to the events section there and you'll find a number of events that are coming up. A bit of news, a bit of blogs and, of course, the podcast, which you can subscribe to. Uh, Please do so. Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. Stay tuned. Queering the Air. Is and happy moon landing. <laughs> happy 50 years since the moon landing. <laughs> See ya. This is in Psychedelia. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.